It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're turning to the most powerful country on earth, the United States of America, and in particular, its current president, Joe Biden. Joe Biden was born in 1942, became a senator in 1972, first ran for president in 1988, lost again in 2008, and finally won the presidency, aged 78, in 2020. This week we're asking, what does Joe Biden's long political career tell us about the politics of the Democratic Party over the past half century? And what might this story mean for next year's presidential election? The youngest new face in the U.S. Senate next year will be that of Democrat Joseph Biden of Delaware. Biden, a liberal Democrat, pulled one of the big upsets of the election by unseating a 63-year-old Republican, Caleb Bob. I expect these fellows are going to eventually judge me on my merit, not on my age. And uh, I have to establish that merit, assuming there is any there. I went to the big guys for the money. I was ready to prostitute myself in the, man- the manner in which I talk about it. But what happened was they said, come back when you're 40, son. I'm like the token black or the token woman. I was the token young person. Passing the Violence Against Women Act will take an important step toward ending the cycle of terror and violence which marks the lives of so many American women. I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. I did not say, to paraphrase Neil Kinnock, but I was talking about me. I did not know that was a Robert Kennedy quote. My mistake. I've done some dumb things, and I'll do dumb things again. When I was a teenager in Delaware, for real, I got involved in the civil rights movement. I was one of those guys that sat in and marched and all that stuff. I was involved, but I was not out marching. I was not down in Selma. I was not anywhere else. Let me say it as simply as I can. Yes, yes, I accept your nomination to run and serve with Barack Obama, the next president of the United States of America. Joe Biden has won the American presidential election. Today, we celebrate the triumph not of a candidate, but of a cause, the cause of democracy. 
So in those clips there, I think you get a sense of the extraordinary longevity of Joe Biden's career in American politics. And I just before we get into the episode, I think it's really important that we just set the scene here to give you a sense of who Joe Biden is, where he comes from and how that shapes his politics. So to start with, Joe Biden is born in 1942 in a place called Scranton in Pennsylvania, described as the most Irish American place in the United States. Obviously, that's going to play an important part of his imaginative understanding of who he is. Being born in 1942 also places him in what's called as the silent generation. And this is between the great generation who fought in the Second World War and the baby boomers who would come after and would have such an impact on American life. The silent generation are seen as more conformist in their political views, more traditionalist. He then moves in 1953 to a strange state, Delaware, which again gives you an idea of the type of politician Joe Biden would become. Delaware sits awkwardly between North and South in the United States. It's above the Mason-Dixie line, but geographically it looks to the South. So it's this kind of border state. It didn't join the Confederacy, but it has that element, that kind of flavor of the South in the same way that somewhere like Maryland might have that as well. You can see how to be elected there, you have to understand American politics, North and South. You have to be able to talk to both. And then Biden comes of age in the 1960s. And again, this is crucially important. In the 1960s, the great issues of the day were Vietnam and civil rights. And being this young kid from Pennsylvania who moves to Delaware, it's an awkward place to be in the in the 1960s. He's then elected to the Senate at an extraordinary young age of 30 in 1972, defeating an incumbent Republican. So Biden has had this real all-American upbringing between 1942 and 72, and then he's into the Senate in 72. But Helen, tell us about the Democratic Party during this same period to fill in the story before we get into this extraordinary tale of Joe Biden. So when Biden was born in 1942, Franklin Roosevelt was president of the United States. He'd won three elections for the Democratic Party by that point in 1932, 1936 and 1914. He would go on to fight one more election in 1944 became the only, in fact, he's the only American president with three terms, let alone half of a fourth term. And Franklin Roosevelt had transformed American politics. The previous sort of 30, 40 year cycle had been, 30 perhaps, had been dominated by a presidential level by the Republican Party. And Roosevelt really changed that. And the policy frame that Roosevelt used to describe or became used to describe Roosevelt's project, the New Deal, really shaped the landscape of American politics. I'd say all the way really well into the into the crucial decade of the 1960s. So if you look at the, the presidential elections between 1932 when Roosevelt won for the first time and 1964 when Lyndon Johnson won a landslide victory for the, the Democratic Party. The only two Republican wins, 1952 and 1956, were with Dwight Eisenhower, a military character, who actually the Democratic Party had a little bit courted for running as, as their candidate. So in some sense, it was only 
by standing outside the conventional parameters of electoral politics that the Republicans managed some success at presidential level in, in, in the 1950s. And Roosevelt had also really established a large Democratic majority in both houses of Congress, so in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. And what we can see in the 1960s, so by the, I should say by the second half of the 1960s, because it will be the Republican Party under Richard Nixon that wins the presidency in 1968, is that the presidential coalition of Democratic voters is fragmenting under the pressures that you've already mentioned, Tom, of civil rights and the Vietnam War. But the Congressional Party, it's the, the balance of power in the Congress is still really quite strongly Democratic. So in 1972, that year when Biden wins election to the Senate for the first time, the Democrats have lost in a complete landslide at presidential level. So the Democrats only win one state, Massachusetts, in 1972. But they remain in control of both houses of Congress with a reasonable majority in the Senate. So I think it's 56 Democratic senators to 42 Republicans after the 1972 election. And what is, I think, important to see about the way in which the Democratic Party is moved between 1968 and 1972 is, is that the tussle for control of the Democratic Party at presidential level or presidential nomination level has really been won by the left of the party Yeah, that's really focused on the war question. And that and civil rights, right? It is, but I think the important thing about the that George McGovern, who was the candidate in 1972, was that he was presenting himself as the peace candidate. Because if you go back to the struggle in 1968 over the Democratic Party, where you had like Johnson and his vice president Hubert Humphrey, Johnson said he wouldn't run for office again after what had happened in the first primary in New Hampshire, and then Hubert Humphrey took the nomination without having won any of the primaries, is is that the peace candidates, so to speak, were Eugene McCarthy and Robert Kennedy. And then the ones who were not necessarily still quite pro the war because Johnson also engaged in a bombing pause in saying he wasn't going to run for the presidency. But they weren't really divided about the civil rights question. They were divided about the war question. And what you then can see is is that the civil rights question is costing Democrats votes in southern states. But the thing that's divisive within the elite level party, if you could see it in that terms, has been the war and the anti-war side of the party has won on that. But it, part of that is the fact, or the two, perhaps the two go together to produce that landslide defeat in 1972. Yeah, so Biden in 72 is coming into this strange party that is already changing, isn't it? So the Democratic Party, I think it's very hard for most sort of modern listeners today to understand what the Democratic Party was like in the 1960s, particularly before the civil rights, but it would hold together, at least in congressional terms, for longer, that it was this awkward remarkably awkward coalition of voters and representatives between the North and South in, in the US. So it was the party of northern cities and immigrant communities, of which Biden is obviously a representative of Irish America, 
and the South, the white segregationist South. And that that had been the block. So when Biden comes in in 72, the, the Civil Rights Act has been passed by Johnson. And Johnson himself says, we are going to lose the South for a generation or, or maybe more when he passes that in 64. And but the, 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 those representatives of, of the white segregationist South are still there. And Biden gets into trouble years later, as we'll, we'll discuss, saying how he was able to talk to both sides of the Democratic Party and, and strike deals. And that's always been a part of his self-image, isn't it? That that person who can work within the system, even with, with people who he, he disagrees with. Yeah. What was true about the Senate that Biden was joining was that the principle of seniority mm. meant that quite a number of the influential committees were chaired by these old, very conservative, segregationist Southerners. Yeah. Notably, the Senate Judiciary Committee that Biden himself would go on to chair in the latter part of the 1980s and into the 90s was chaired by James Eastland, who was as mm. probably hardcore white supremacist segregationist yeah. senator as there was in the in the 1970s i find it fascinating american politics in this respect that so much actually a little bit like britain but we don't think of it this way is governed by these rules and procedures that aren't constitutionally written down there's nothing in the constitution as far as i'm aware that says that the senate should be run on seniority basis and that they that you have to have super majorities to pass legislation these are rules that have emerged from within the Senate, but had extraordinary power in holding that that institution together and shaping American policy and attitudes. You have these great figures who would come into Congress and then just find themselves trapped for decades, not being able to go anywhere because of the seniority system meant they couldn't get to the chairmanship of whatever committee. And so they didn't have any power. They didn't have any sway. And so just by being somebody who just sticks around like Joe Biden coming in at age 30 just gives you this advantage over anyone who comes in as a junior senator from wherever in, in their 50s or 60s. Yeah, as a senator, Biden had a lot of influence. He ended up chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He presided over some pretty important nomination, significant nomination battles for the Supreme Court. And he also ended up as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And we'll talk about that in our episode next week. Because of that, he plays quite an important role in the congressional authorization of the Iraq war. So the fact that he gets into the Senate early and sticks yeah. is actually an important part of this story. I think it also has consequences for when we get to 2008, because what happens for these senators who've been in the Senate for a long time is that they then have these very long records. <laughs> yes. Can be, because the nature of the Senate is essentially a lot of compromise in order for any kind of legislation to be passed. And more back then as well. You Absolutely. had to compromise with the segregationist South. Yeah. Is, is then that becomes political ammunition for younger presidential candidates who can say, but look what you voted for on that. Look what you said when you were talking about that issue 20, 30 years ago. And you see, Biden comes in in 72. And as we heard in those opening clips, he's described as a liberal Democrat from Delaware. And he moves very quickly once he's in to try and get rid of that notion or that tag as being a liberal Democrat. And this is really crucial, I think, into understanding Biden and how his role within the Democratic Party and then his eventual success 
in 2020, he moved to say very clearly, I'm conservative on certain issues. So he says he's conservative on abortion. He His record is actually remarkably conservative in many ways. This is in the important part of being the senator from Delaware. Delaware is a strange, not just strange in, geographically and in this place between North and South, but this this like tax haven really status. Really, effectively, yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? A tax haven. Onshore tax haven rather than an offshore tax haven. Yeah, and so you've got these financial institutions that are based there, which then Biden becomes their representative, and they're these huge do- donors to his career all the way through so he sponsors legislation on credit card companies right which which is you know doing what they're asking of effectively which is to make it much harder for people to declare themselves bankrupt right yes and so he does so he does that he he sponsors or is very supportive of really draconian crime legislation in the 90s and then he's the chairman of the judiciary committee as well so you've got this you've got this figure who has emerged in a in a kind of sweet spot of american politics between north and south at a time when the democratic party is changing and his skill as a kind of young representative of this party this election winning machine is to find himself right in the center of that party to make sure that he's not seen as too progressive or he's not seen as too conservative he's somebody who's able to build these coalitions that was until the 60s and 70s the key way of understanding the united states it wasn't that the republican party was the conservative party and the democratic party was the liberal party that wasn't that wasn't how it worked they were broad coalitions which contained liberals and conservatives in both yeah, I think the thing, though, we need to add into this is is that we're talking at the moment about him in the Senate and that this is a body along with the House of Representatives that remains largely like Democratic dominated, though the Democrats do lose control of the Senate in 1980 in the election that Ronald Reagan won, is that at presidential level, something different is going on. So... After the humiliation of 1972, the Democrats do get a chance again because of Nixon's resignation. Nixon resigned in 1974. He was succeeded by his second vice president, Gerald Ford, who then went on to lose the election to Jimmy Carter, but even then only quite narrowly. And given that Nixon was the first American president who'd had to resign, that should have been obviously a very easy election for the Democrats to win. And it wasn't quite like that and then and they choose a man from the south yeah absolutely that's important yeah georgia georgia is in 1980 when carter's running for re-election though he loses to to ronald reagan in 1984 the democrats repeat the humiliation of 1972 in that they lose 49 to 1 in terms of the states and this time it's minnesota i think that the candidate walter mondale's home state so even massachusetts had Gone Republican in That's amazing to think, in, in nineteen eighty in nineteen eighty-four. And what we see then is this movement to try to drag the Democratic Party back from people like Joe Biden, from what they see as the abyss of nineteen eighty-four. And this really quite important organization is established called the Democratic Leadership Council in nineteen eighty-five. And there's a set of people who are associated with that, some of them 
in the Senate, for instance, a man called Sam Nunn, who was the one of the Democratic senators from Georgia, Chuck Robb, who was from Virginia. But in the end, the most important person who came out of the Democratic Leadership Council was Bill Clinton. But at that point when it's first emerging, so the middle of the 1980s, in the run-up to the 1988 general election, Biden is really, I think, trying to establish himself as the leading personality of the Democratic Leadership Council. Actually, there were three of them who are members of it, effectively, who who run as who announced that they're running as candidates in 1988. So Al Gore, yeah. who was senator from Tennessee, Tennessee at yeah. the time, who would go on, obviously, to be Clinton's vice presidential vice president and then run for the presidency himself in uh, the, the nomination in 2000, plus Richard Gephardt, who was in the House of Representatives. But Biden doesn't even make it to the first primary in 1988 because after it's shown that he'd plagiarised Neil Kinnock, he drops out. Why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations to be able to get the university. Is it because I'm the first Biden in a thousand generations to get a college and a graduate degree? Is it because they were weak? Those people who could work eight hours underground and then come up and play football? Is it because they didn't work hard? My ancestors who worked in the coal mines in northeast Pennsylvania and come up after 12 hours and play football for four hours? It was because there was no platform upon which they could stand. It's because they didn't have a platform upon which to stand. And neither Al Gore nor Gephardt make any progress in 1988. And indeed, the front runner that year was a man called Gary Hart, who also had been in the Senate. He was trying to reform the Democratic Party too, but he wasn't doing it within the context of the Democratic Leadership Council. And the nominee that year is Michael Dukakis, who had been the governor of Massachusetts, a more technocratic type in some ways is this a problem for the democrats so ever since they lose the south that how do you then create a coalition to win the presidency because johnson had created this what looked like a permanent majority for the for the democrats when he was elected in 64 but then because of civil rights in vietnam that completely goes and it's replaced by what looks like a you know a, a dominant republican party being once they're able to win in the South, they can form these presidential juggernauts that they're not, you know, the story that you've outlined. And that's that's the question for the Democrats. That's why they keep going back to these Southern Democratic men, people like Gore, Clinton. And that's why Biden looked quite well-placed to lead the Democratic Party at some point in the 80s, because he was of the South, but, but could assemble a coalition of, of the North and South. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing was is that he blew up so quickly in 1988 that no one had got any idea whether he really could assemble a coalition. He was obviously part positioning himself as New Democrat, to use that language, but also using his Irish Americanness to try and present himself as a Kennedy heir, I think, in, in some sense. I think, though, it is pretty revealing that in 1992, when someone who's come out of the Democratic Leadership Council does end up winning the nomination and then goes on to win the presidency and that's Bill Clinton that he is a southerner now we've obviously got to put some caveats in that election success because in 1992 there was a third party candidate 
Ross Perot, who whilst not winning in any electoral college seats, meant that Bill Clinton won with only, I think it's 43% of the popular vote in, in, in 1992. Now, that isn't to suggest that without Perot, Clinton wouldn't have won. I don't think that that's, I think that's too simplistic account of what happened in in 1992 but it just goes to show that at this point the democrats return as a competitive presidential party is still tough going it's only actually in like 2000 when gore wins and the perog question is taken off the table that we can that we can see that in that sense they become uber competitive. So what's the key for Clinton? How does he how does he get over the line? I assume so he takes his own he takes a few states he in takes the south. Some, he, he takes southern states. And I think that it's important to see that Clinton you know, is able to not only present himself as someone who has some southern credibility mm. in that respect, but that He's also talking, we can hear that in the, and I still believe in a place called Hope. Yeah. I still believe in a place called Hope, a place called America. Thank you. God bless you. It's also this third way, isn't it? It's presented by some American historians, Clinton, as almost kind of suing for peace. In that, you know, you have the Goldwater Revolution, Barry Goldwater, the Republican senator for Arizona, who turns the Republican Party into a conservative party to, to some extent, ideologi- ideologically, and gets destroyed by Lyndon Johnson. But then it's that party that starts building and eventually triumphs in the 80s under Reagan. And under this kind of narrative, what Clinton is doing is going, OK, hands up, you know, you win on these various issues. I accept what you've established in the 80s. And it's like, it's, it's essentially what Tony Blair has done. It's third way politics. It's conservative. It's, it's centrist politics. That's, that's the argument. And that's how they, they start to win. And that's the party that Clinton creates. Well, I think what you can see in terms of the, the Democratic Leadership Council that Clinton's come out, out of and then the way in which he campaigns is the strong emphasis on, on being tough on crime. To use Blair's own which is break. what Biden signs up to. Yeah, in- and then about reforming welfare, trying to talk more the language of economic growth and redistribution. I think, though, it's important to see, leaving aside these issues that we've been talking about in which he campaigned, that what the transformative thing about Clinton and the Democratic Party is actually what happens when he's been in office for a couple of years, particularly after the 1994 midterm elections in that he turns the Democrats into a much more corporate-friendly party. And it becomes a party that is, seems as at ease as accepting large donations from the kinds of corporate players that have in the past predominantly given to the Republican Party going to the Democratic Party, including from the financial services industry. Now, Biden, interestingly, has kind of like been on that all the way from the beginning because of his relationship to, to Delaware. But I think that what you have ended up with by the time at the end of the Clinton presidency, which he then passes over to Al Gore, is a party that wants to present itself as really as business friendly as the Republican Party. A claim that they're going to do it more competently, a claim that the proceeds of growth, the benefits of growth are going to be distributed more fairly. 
But this is a party that's left, I think, any kind of like left liberalism on economic questions some way behind. American liberalism, we should say. Yeah. <laughs> As you talk there, you, I can't help but think of like Peter Mandelson. We are intensely comfortable about people being very rich or Tony Blair. But obviously, I'm looking at that from a British perspective, but it's the other way around, isn't it? You know, it's, it's Mandelson and Blair who are looking at what the Democratic Party of Clinton and Biden are doing and and copying that that's the overall story that's going on here they they were the first to that sort of third way democratic centrism yeah and i think that there isn't really actually then much space for biden actually in that outside the senate so if we think about it as like what happens when clinton can't run for presidency any longer he passes over to al gore his vice president now you would expect that person to win the nomination because if you look at the, the history of what happens when you have a two-term president and the vice president then runs for the nomination, they get it. That's actually why the fact that Biden doesn't inherit in 2016 from Obama is quite actually revealing. Then Gore loses the, the 2000 election extraordinarily narrowly, as we know, in its two terms of... George Bush, John Kerry wins the Democratic nomination in 2004. Biden flirts for a while with running in 2004, but decides not to. And then his problem, I think, in 2008, which is his second run for the, the presidency, is that the party is so dominated by the Clinton machine that it's now set up machine-wise to hand Hillary Clinton the nomination but there will be a challenge it will come from as we know barack obama it will come successfully but interestingly the the place he is able substantively to attack hillary clinton is over the iraq war and we'll come back to that in our ep next week's episode in terms of why that is so important but when biden's declares himself in 2008 and is running against these two it's not really clear what what he can do. What he offers, yeah. What he can do. What? How is he trying to distinguish himself? Yeah, he was like a sec the second rank politician who could have built a Clinton style majority. He his chance to do that had, had come and gone. Mm. Clinton had inherited that, and Obama represents something else. He's an African American senator from Illinois. That traditionally you would have any any of those Clinton Democrats would have looked at that. And just said, well, that looks impossible to win a majority, a presidential majority. But obviously he goes on to do so. And we'll turn to what happens next between 2008, Biden eventually winning the presiden presidency in 2020, and then his career after that, after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So we're picking the story back up in 2008, Helen, when Biden is picked by Obama to be his running mate. Now, this is a crucially important moment because Biden is a senior figure in the Senate. You know, he's chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. He's chair of the Judiciary Committee. So these these give him extraordinary power, but he's not going to be president. That seems to have that seems to have gone. But what Obama's victory over Hillary Clinton in 2008 represents is a shift in the party, doesn't it? It was the Bill Clinton party, that machine that that had won in the 90s was extraordinarily powerful, but Obama had broken it. And that was a defining moment in American in, in American politics, clearly, but also for the Democratic Party. Absolutely, is that the attempt at a, a Clinton succession within the Democratic Party failed. And I think, though, that it is important to remember that was a bitterly contested and protracted nomination struggle between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. So you had primaries by the end of that nomination season where it was pretty clear that Obama was going to be the nominee. And yet he was losing by, I think it was about 40 points in West Virginia to Hillary Clinton. And so I think you can understand that Obama picked Biden, I mean, by that as an understanding or belief on Obama's part that he had to in some sense, provide some political cover for the kind of centrist white voters whom Bill Clinton had been good at winning during his presidency, that Hillary Clinton had been good at winning in the nomination of 2008. Ironically, voters that she would struggle with very badly in 2016 and that Biden could, like, tap in. It was like a nod, like a reach back to this older party. And it was... He didn't want Hillary Clinton as his running mate. And so in that sense, Biden fitted into that package. But then things really, I think, for the Democratic Party, just don't work out as you might have expected after Obama's triumph in 2008. The party then actually becomes a party that is better at presidential elections quite significantly, 2008 and Obama's victory in 2012 against Mitt Romney. But if you look at the the midterm elections in between, so the 2010 and then the 2014, that the Democrats perform really poorly, even though that in the congressional elections of 2008 itself, so the ones that went hand in hand with Obama's first victory, that they done, they that, that they'd done pretty well. And this obviously stymies Obama as a reforming president. One can wonder how reformist he actually intended mm, to be, Yeah, whether it wasn't more a, a change of style from the Clinton party rather than a change of substance um, from the Clinton party. But it doesn't produce a radical presidency. And I think out of the, the disillusionment of that, and the fact that Obama's candidacy in 2008 had seemed like something that was going to be more transformative than it was, we see a shift within the Democratic Party, including an activist 
level, perhaps particularly at activist level, to the left, yeah, to what becomes often described as the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And that shift, I think, really then shapes the 2016 contest for the nomination. Now, as you say, Tom, after some, obviously, quite a lot of internal deliberation, uh, Biden stays out of it. But it becomes a contest between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, who isn't actually officially a Democratic senator at that point. It's odd, isn't it, when you look back at it historically, that Biden didn't get the nomination in 2016. He was chosen for a reason. Most vice presidents then go on to get the nomination. The party was moving in the direct in, in Obama's direction. It was more liberals. So why would they go back to Hillary? Why didn't they go for Biden in 2016? Well, I think that that's partly a, a question of the fact that in an organisational sense, that the the Clintons still dominated the machine of the Democratic Party. And that if you looked at it in terms of the fundraising aspects of it, for instance, that the Clinton machine, so to, to speak, was more influential than Obama was during his presidency, in part because I think quite a bit of Obama's fundraising went not so much on the Democratic National Committee, but on Obama's personal election stuff. And so one of the contexts in which the 2016 nomination race took place and why there were all those accusations, if you recall, about the the, the Democratic National Committee being biased against Sanders was effectively because the Democratic National Committee was financially dependent upon the Clinton campaign. And I think it isn't entirely clear that Obama was ever really willing to back Biden against Hillary Clinton, in that sense, that this was the legacy of the very bitter contest that had gone on between Obama and Hillary Clinton back in 2000. And the power of the Clintons then is extraordinary, isn't it? To think about that from 92 all the way up to 2016, it has this stranglehold over the Democratic Party, producing obviously not only Bill Clinton's presidencies, but then Al Gore, then Hillary and then Hillary again. Well, know, nomination, obviously. Nominations, yeah. yeah. But, but even in defeat, they're still pursuing the same idea, the same strategy, I should say, that, you know, Gore had lost and then Hillary Clinton had lost to Barack Obama. And then, obviously, in 2016, they would they would have one last go. But I think there was a tension there if we, in the approach that Hillary Clinton took to 2016, where she was actually, in that sense, trying to play Barack Obama in 2008 against her own Hillary Clinton from 2008, because the very voters that she was struggling with in 2016, to some extent in the primaries, but certainly in the in the general election, were the voters that she'd actually done quite well with, as I said, in, 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 in 2008. But I think that the, the, the problem was that the whole political landscape in the United States on the Democratic side had shifted quite some way leftward. It's quite hard to imagine Bernie Sanders' candidacy against Obama's or Hillary Clinton's or indeed Joe Biden's in like in in 2008. It takes that sort of 
disillusionment about Obama not being a more radical president and the general, in some sense, I think, perhaps disillusioned more generally with where American politics had got to by 2016 to produce the, the Sanders phenomenon. The foreign policy aspect of this is, is, is really quite important, including, I think, in the kind of vice president that Biden was. But what it meant, I think, was that the, for that 2016 election is that the Clinton's dominance of the Democratic Party meant that in dealing with a insurgent candidacy like Trump, and Trump had effectively hijacked the Republican Party during its nomination process, the Democrats ended up really, perhaps with the worst possible candidate they could have had yeah. for dealing. And as you say, she would that. have been better as that candidate eight years earlier. Well, she would have been better as the candidate she was eight years yes, earlier yeah. in, in 2016. And I think it's quite revealing that reportedly anyway, Biden went around saying after Trump had won in 2016, I would have beaten him. And you, you can you can you can understand why he makes that claim. I mean, obviously, he makes that claim for self-interested purposes, but it's also there, there does contain some truth in that. You can see how he would have appealed more to those voters that did go to Trump, those working-class voters from the swing states in the Midwest or Pennsylvania, in particular, obviously where he's from. And then in parts of the South as well. But also the Democratic Party is changing. That's what I also find interesting. There's this pollster in the UK called Andrew Cooper, who was a pollster for David Cameron. He's actually now a pollster for Keir Starber, I think. We're certainly doing some polling for him. And he has these fascinating graphs about how politics is shifting in, in the US and, and in the UK, actually. And on a X and Y axis, you know, you have wealth and diversity, and what you see is that the Democratic Party is becoming a the party of wealthy parts of America and diverse parts of America. So that's urban, wealthy cities, New York, California, Massachusetts. And it's becoming less of the party tr that it traditionally was of the sort of the working man, the ordinary, the ordinary man. And the Republican Party is becoming the party of poorer America but also white America. And that sort of, that shift that is happening is you can plot it on each presidential election and it's becoming more and more marked as you go. So there's this long line of continuity that, that you can take from Trump through the Bushes all the way back to Nixon. So it's, some of them are these great breaks, obviously like Trump and Clinton is is a part of that story as well. But there is also this this through line that, that you can see American politics shifting. And what I think Biden is interesting at is he shifts with it over time, doesn't he? So in the 70s, as we've discussed, he's presenting himself as a more conservative figure. But over time, he shifts his positions on various things to the point where that will be called out when he then goes for the presidency in 2020. And he struggles because people point back at his record, whether it's Elizabeth Warren over his credit card championing or Kamala Harris, who talks about his record in the Senate in the 70s on this question of busing, which is the attempt to desegregate schools. So you had it in the South where you had illegal segregation of school, imposed segregation, but you had it in Northern states where 
it wasn't a policy. It was just an effect of the cities being segregated. So you'd have, you know, you'd have a, an African American school, a white school, but that wasn't because African Americans weren't allowed into the white school. It had almost happened kind of organically, and so you had this process of busing to move children to different schools. And Joe Biden became the most ferocious opposer of this busing policy in the 70s. So the most conservative figure on this question in the Democratic Party, or one of the most conservative figures. And this would be something that Kamala Harris would take him to task over. But it's also interesting there, because it's, I don't think it was really organic so much as it was a function of the fact of how racially segregated housing was. And that, interestingly, in part went back to the way in which Franklin Roosevelt had pursued the New Deal in relation to housing. But I think what we can see by that 2020 election, and there's all kinds of, in the sense, this of past history playing itself out. And he's got a big past history. Got, yeah, in that contest. And that the context of it was that there was no obvious front runner for the Democratic nomination against an incumbent nominally Republican, but actually this strange personality that was it was is Donald Trump. And you had a whole host of Democrats putting themselves forward to be the nominee, most of whom were pretty considerably younger than Joe Biden, and most of whom were significantly to the left. And nor a northern from memory. Like Pete Buttigieg from yeah. from Indiana, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. These were all figures from the north. There was like Beto O'Rourke, Beto O'Rourke was from, from Texas. Texas yeah. Yeah, he, he's a strange candidate because he never seems to win anything, yeah. but he was from Texas. And Biden represented an older Democratic Party, o older even than the Clinton. Well, machine. I also think as well, it, it, was, it was a matter of age. It was, there was a generational thing going on. But he also represented, in that sense, the corporate Clinton Party in the sense that he was very well embedded into the same kind of relations with corporate donors that typified the Clinton Democratic Party and indeed that Hillary Clinton had in some sense got pilliered for in 2008 and then to some extent in a different kind of way in, in 2016. So in that sense, Biden didn't represent a break from the Clinton hold on the, the Democratic Party, even though that he'd been Obama's vice president. And what we see in the early contest is that he just performs incredibly poorly, is that in Iowa, in New Hampshire, I think maybe he does a bit better in New Hampshire, and then in, in Nevada, his candidacy looks like it's going nowhere, even though he'd been the nominal front runner in 2019, simply because of the fact that he was the most senior person in the race. And I think you can also see that his positions were getting dragged further to the left in that early stage of the contest. I remember particularly on the issue of shale, oil and gas, where most of the candidates wanted to ban it. And then he was trying to hold some kind of line, but it was a line which was essentially like no new exploration. It was way to the left of like, of where say Hillary Clinton had been in, in 2000 and 16. And even that position was he it was costing him in Pennsylvania, mm. which was then the the swing the swing state. It, it is amazing that he even emerges. It's a state of the Democratic Party. It's like the Labour Party choosing 
Neil Kinnock to run, you know, but after there's a, Corbyn. There's a very specific reason for it, though, and I think that it was always a possibility that this was the way it was going to turn out because the, those first three contests in Iowa, New Hampshire and Nevada and are states that don't have many African-American voters. And the the contest that really made a difference was South Carolina. And interestingly, that was the same contest that really made a difference for Obama back in 2008. And that what happened in the run-up to the South Carolina primary was that the most senior African-American representative in the House of Representatives, Jim Clyburn, endorsed Biden. And that he then won that primary really rather easily. And then interestingly, the party establishment, if you like, perhaps typified here, maybe more a bit by Obama than by Hillary Clinton, basically rattled out of the race the, the least progressive of the other candidates. Yes, yeah. And they then collectively endorsed Biden. And that reduced it to a contest between Biden and Sanders. But isn't it strange to think of the arc of Biden's story from this conservative Democrat from Delaware representing these corporate interests, opposing busing, being an author of the crime bill in the, under Clinton, which becomes this, this symbol for progressives in the Democratic Party of everything that was wrong with the Bill Clinton presidency locking up generations of African-Americans. And yet here he is as endorsed by the African-American leader of the House of Representatives, securing the nomination in the South based on African-American support, not that old kind of white segregationist support that or the white segregationist Democratic Party that he knew in the 70s. You know, that is a, an amazing story. It is, but I think that there's several things going on here. First of them, I think, is it's not true that African-American voters of those, in, in terms of those who vote in large numbers in primaries, are really on the progressive side of the Democratic Absolutely, Party. Absolutely, yeah. And it's also true, I think, though, that he got an enormous amount of credibility with African-American voters by being Obama's vice president, by being and a very loyally. very loyal vice president, never a word of dissent out of him, willing to take jobs that Obama didn't really want to do himself yeah. and not to then complain that they were politically difficult. I think in, I think there was someone who described it as you know, acting as Obama's wingman. And then that was a very, that was a very powerful, in some sense, it was, very power, it was a very powerful symbol. And yeah. so I think yeah. that he reaped rewards for that. I think this paradoxical thing, perhaps it's a paradox, perhaps it isn't, it apparently appears so anyway, is is that though having then won the contest against Trump in November of 2020, not necessarily quite narrowly, but it wasn't clear immediately that he had one and there were obviously in some individual states some quite small margins of victory then his presidency he resets it, the democratic party what well, he is in the democratic party significantly to the left yeah so even though that he's won the nomination against sanders and presented himself as not the progressive part of the democratic party his presidency he's determined that it is 
going to be, despite the fact that they've got wafer thin margin in the Senate. Yeah. In particular, and not that large a majority in the in the House of Representatives that was then lost. And the person who he, in some sense, who he wants to claim the mantle of goes all the way back to Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah. Because he wants... And LBJ. Well, who, particularly Roosevelt, I would say, because he wants us to use the Green New Deal. That was his initial frame for what became, would become later the Inflation Reduction Act. And he saw himself then, he wanted to present himself as he was going to be a transformative president of the kind that Roosevelt had been. Even though who was his president when he was born. Yeah, yeah. But even though the congressional situation that Roosevelt faced and had enjoyed, a better way of putting it, and what Obama, the congressional situation that Roosevelt enjoyed, for the most part anyway, what Biden was constrained by were nothing like but do you each think, other. Do you think, thinking about the president's the presidential election in 2024 is that you I mean is that what he's doing or is it his instinct or what is it because the other way of thinking about biden is that it, and we've discussed this a bit he has this laser focus on what is the center of the democratic party so he so he shifts his position depending on where the democratic mm. party is but he's prepared to be very flexible but the democratic party is moving left significantly so he does too i think you're absolutely right Tom, in that Biden moves with the political wind within the Democratic Party and that he understood that there couldn't be another version of the Obama presidency that led to such political disappointment. In that sense, Bernie Sanders, both 2016 and 2020, come out of the disappointment with the Obama presidency. But I also think that we have to factor Donald Trump into this and the fact that Trump's behaviour created a political space in which the Democratic Party could move to the left and that Biden was willing to seize that. And that is obviously now, well, it looks like it's going to frame the contest, as you said, for 2024 because the way that things are looking now, on the surface, it looks like we're heading for a repeat of that Biden versus Trump election again, even though there are so many questions, obviously, legally around Donald Trump. And around Biden's health and, and age and all of those questions as well. But I guess mm. you could you could have a different candidate from both parties. Yes, not, you could. not impossible. Trump moves to the right, obviously, on, on many issues. But weirdly, economically, it's hard to say what Trump is, you know, because he's also pursuing, you know, deindustrialized working class America with an offer of protectionism. Tax cuts to corporate interests and the rich on one hand, but protectionist tariffs to protect American industry on the other. And that's actually a legacy that Biden is picking up and running with as well. And that, that's the basis of the inflation. Well, I think what Biden does in this respect, and this is in domestic sense, the purpose of his presidency is to try to close down the possibility of another Trump winning a presidential election by basically saying we have to repudiate being the Clinton Democratic party. We can't be the party any longer that allows offshoring of American manufacturing jobs to 
China, we have to reshore quite a lot of domestic manufacturing production. But we're going to do that around the climate agenda. So that is the way simultaneously of addressing the leftward shift of the Democratic Party, but also covering for or addressing all the weaknesses that were in evidence in, in the 2016 election so in terms you, of that as a contest between Trump and Hillary Clinton. Do you see him then as a kind of transformative president in that he is building a new democratic coalition of voters that actually could be quite powerful and difficult for the Republicans to defeat in presidential elections anyway, not just for Trump? or Because I suppose his, his image is more of a doddery old man who represents the past you know this kind of old democratic party and he's just about keeping things together but the party underneath him you know can't assemble the kind of coalition that he can he's just this is like a last the last gasp of some old party i think it is both of those things in a way in that is is that it is a project of reinvention for the democratic party and i think that the Inflation Reduction Act is absolutely central to that. But it, it's odd that this is being led by Joe Biden, or at least nominally led by Joe Biden. Because on the one hand, it's trying to have a tr to transform America under democratic leadership. And yet the leadership of the United States in both parties but for perhaps longer in the Democratic Party, is just generationally stuck. If you if you look at the the age of the nominees of of Democratic contenders, like really since let, let's say like from Kennedy, John Kennedy in nineteen sixty onwards, it kind of makes generational sense what's going on. Until we get to like the two thousand eight election, you have a leap from people born in the nineteen forties to Obama born in nineteen sixty one. We're still making sense to that point and then we not only have in 2016 and 2020 going back to people born in the 1940s but they're more serious rivals in those cases bernie sanders in both elizabeth warren in 2020 are also older people and that it doesn't look like kamala harris biden's vice president would really be able to step in if biden's health would mean that he wasn't able to run no, she, so she hasn't been there's something that's there's just something that's generationally trapped that's ossified despite the fact that biden in some ways is being a transformative president for the party on all sides you know like trump is long into his 70s you have mitch mcconnell in the mm -hmm. senate who's I think, 81 i think 81 nancy pelosi i think is over 80, I think. These, it's amazing, isn't it? This is the seniority system in the in the Congress still. I don't, I don't think it exists in the same way as it do, it did in the in the 70s, but it's still a, a extraordinarily powerful. I think, yeah, partly it's something to do with the baby boomers, but I think it's it is absolutely more than that. And it's interesting that Obama in 2008 was really keen on this generational language. Hmm. Remember, he talked about, we are the ones that we've been waiting for. He was already kind of effectively saying that we need, we need youth, yeah. and that he represented a new generation. But it's not only that his presidency ended in disappointment for people 
for many people on the democratic side, but that also the exact opposite happened in terms of moving down. Yeah, he already looks dated to to most younger democratic voters today. Like he, you know, he's dithering over equal marriage and gay marriage and things like that. It looks of the past, a kind of failed past. And then just turning to the, before we wrap up this episode, the the election, you know, Biden is not, it's not yet guaranteed that he's going to get there. It looks like he's going to be the nominee to at least some degree because there is no obvious alternative candidate. You know, his vice president, Kamala Harris, hasn't been very impressive, doesn't seem to, seems to have fallen away. A bit, Pete Buttigieg is very impressive, but I don't know. He seems almost too young. So who is there? You know, I don't think the the Democratic Party have an obvious candidate or successor. I don't know about you, Helen, but I I look at 2024 and it seems still covered in mist. I can't quite see what's happening and what it means for the United States or the Democratic Party you have Biden as this weird character who seemed both potentially transformative and potentially just a sort of last stopgap t- towards something else. You don't even know if he's going to be the candidate. And then on the Republican side, you don't even know if Donald Trump's going to be allowed or able to stand as the Republican candidate. You know, there are some people who think it's, it's somebody will emerge late in the day. So you don't know. And then you don't know as well which of those two are going to be able to create a coalition that will last in the same way that previous presidents. It seems that something is shifting in in the American political system. And, and I guess that also has a dramatic impact on America's place in the world. It's not just about domestic affairs, but foreign affairs as well. If you go back to 2016, you can say that there is a quite sharp contest going on about foreign policy between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. But actually, although Trump, the way in which he deals with the China question is very provocative to many people, he actually, as I think we've talked about before when we were talking about Made in China 2025, shifts the dial so that you have a new bipartisan consensus effectively about confront China. It's very difficult to see how if you had a, and I completely accept all your conditionals about this, being a Biden versus Trump return contest. But if that was where the United States ended up, it's really difficult to see how a bipartisan consensus really about anything, not least about the Ukraine war, would come out of that. And it's that question of how to think about what Joe Biden's career tells us about American power in the world and American foreign policy choices that we're going to turn to in our next episode. Thanks for listening to These Times. Please do subscribe and share with your friends and family. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.